I hope everybody's realized by now, these masks make a difference. I'm sorry, what did you say, Mr. President? I couldn't hear you with that mask on. Would you mind taking that off? No? All right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFC, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. You can run, but you cannot hide from the broadcast. Uh, unless you're in Congress, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, yes, anyway, I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, and welcome to it. So, as uh, noted, this story just broke right before airtime today from the Washington Post. The House of Representatives will take its last votes of the week on Wednesday night, ending its work week early after Capitol Police warned of reports that an unnamed militant group planned to breach the Capitol on Thursday. Have you heard this story yet, Des? I saw the headline. Yeah, it sounds the, like, here we go again. Here we go again. The scheduled change came after Capitol security officials warned of credible threats of violence by right-wing extremists who have fabricated the false claim that March 4 is the, quote, true Inauguration Day when former President Donald Trump will be sworn in for a second term. Now, I've uh, known about this. This is part of the the mythology, the, the QAnon nonsense, Delusion, yeah, fantasy. Well, well they uh, yes. After, of course, after they they failed on January sixth to overthrow the country. After January twenty, didn't uh, turn out to be the big storm when Donald Trump rides in uh, heroically and gathers up all of the Democrats and deep staters and executes them. After that, of course, they were, you know, they were told it was going to happen time and time again, and then it didn't happen. Well, then they said it's going to be March 4. Why? Because March 4 was the original inauguration day in the U.S. Constitution. 
And that is therefore the true inauguration day when we're going to when Donald Trump's going to write in victoriously and actually become the president again or something. I don't know. As a matter of fact, how is even the president at all if he was sworn in on January 20th in, in 2016? That doesn't make any sense, right? He, well, none he of wouldn't it makes even sense, be. But yes. <clears throat> now, I wasn't sure if I would even I didn't even want to talk about it, didn't even want to cover it because it's so stupid and uh, dangerous. But uh, the fact that now the House of Representatives is going to leave a day early for their weekend, for their already long weekend. Well, I guess now it's actually newsworthy. House Sergeant at Arms Timothy Blodgett told lawmakers in a Wednesday memo that the Capitol Police have, quote, enhanced their security posture in response and noted that National Guard troops remain posted at the campus. The memo also encouraged members and staff to park in garages, use underground tunnels whenever possible, similar to the guidelines, uh, the guidance that they gave ahead of the January 6th riot. Rather than risk being at the Capitol, the House moved up votes on a policing reform bill that was scheduled to be debated on Thursday. Instead, it will uh, it's expected to pass on Wednesday night, along with debate and passage of a voting rights bill described uh, that way by The Washington Post. I believe that will be H.R. 1, the massive voting rights bill, which would be transformative, frankly, if passed. It mandates automatic voter registration, early voting. It would end gerrymandering of Congress and much, much more. It's a huge, huge bill. And yes, it would be transformative if passed and signed into law. So while it is likely to be adopted once again in the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate is another matter, at least until or if West Virginia's Joe Manchin, the most powerful man in the U.S. Senate, and Arizona's Kirsten Cinema, apparently the most powerful woman in the U.S. Senate, until they finally understand how dumb and undemocratic the, uh, the, the, the filibuster is going to be in preventing virtually everything that Democrats need to get done. That will keep it from getting done unless they can reform the filibuster. For the record, uh, the Senate plans to be in session on Thursday on true Inauguration Day. <laughs> so you don't see them running from the hills, although we'll see how that turns out, see if it turns out to have been a bad choice or not, I guess. Uh, frankly, between you and me, I think nothing's going to happen. I think it's going to be a big dud. Another huge disappointment for the QAnon folks uh, who will become more and more despondent. So sad. But um, <laughs> and that's why I didn't even want to mention it. But, you know, now well, it they've gives, canceled the house. Well, it does give oxygen to these delusional folks in the QAnon movement. And the right wing extremists are using the QAnon movement as cover in order to launch these 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 dangerous operations. And, you know, maybe it will be a dud. Of course, I hope it will be a dud. But that does not negate the fact that we have a growing right wing extremist problem in the United States, which FBI Director Christopher Wray has been testifying about during this week. Yep. Uh, he calls it metastasizing in this country, right-wing extremism. Another word for that, by the way, is terrorism. So uh, anyway, before the House skedaddled on Wednesday, the uh, House Oversight and Reform Committee 
has reissued a subpoena for former President Donald Trump's tax and other financial records, arguing that it's needed uh, to address, quote, conflicts of interest by future presidents. In a court filing first reported by Reuters, House lawyers told a judge that the House Oversight Committee reissued its subpoena to Trump's accounting firm on February 25. Tuesday's court filing included a February 23 memo from committee chair uh, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney of New York, asserting that because of long-running court challenges, her committee, quote, for more than 22 months had been denied key information needed to inform legislative action to address the once-in-a-generation ethics crisis created by former President Trump's unprecedented conflicts of interest. According to Maloney, the call for Trump's tax records, quote, remains just as compelling now as it was when the committee first issued its subpoena in 2019, That subpoena had expired with the new Congress, uh, but it was needed, they say, in order to verify key facts and tailor legislative reforms. Maloney said the subpoena seeks, quote, financial records related to the committee's investigations into presidential conflicts of interest, presidential contracts with the federal government and self-dealing and presidential emoluments. With that in mind, the committee has sought eight years of accounting and other financial information from the uh, uh, Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA. The renewed call for access to Trump's tax records comes after the Supreme Court uh, just just last week, I think. Uh, Things have slowed down a bit, but But they're uh, still moving too fast. Yeah, too quickly for me to keep track of time. I think it was last week that the Supremes uh, denied a final bid by the former disgraced president to block the subpoena for his tax records uh, that was sought by Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance's office, ending a nearly 18-month battle for those financial documents. Those documents are now said to be in his hands and that of the grand jury in Manhattan, whose criminal investigation into Trump and his family business has focused on potential financial crimes like bank fraud, insurance fraud, tax fraud, that in addition to hush money payments during the 2016 presidential campaign to two women who alleged uh, that they had affairs with Donald Trump. Uh, so those tax records from Mazars were delivered in that criminal investigation, and now the House, the House Oversight and Reform Committee also wants those records. The uh, criminal investigation, by the way, has recently picked up steam, reportedly, to include a uh, sharpened focus on both the Trump organization's longstanding chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Yes, they are focusing on the bookkeeper. (laughs) The bookkeeper, by the way, of about 50 years. I believe he worked, uh, started working with Trump's dad, Fred Trump, in 1971. So this guy knows where all of the bodies are buried. <clears throat> and now criminal investigators are said to be uh, focusing on what he knows and what he doesn't and whether he can be squeezed or not. And I guess whether Donald Trump will be willing to throw uh, the old family friend, Alan Weisselberger, under the bus. But why wouldn't they? 
The investi- that investigation is also said to be uh, looking at Trump's eldest son, Don Jr., who uh, took the reins of the family business along with his brother Eric when uh, their dad was elected president in 2016. Uh, And one more here before we get to my guest today. Yes, the great climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann will be here with some thoughts on, yes, Bill Gates and the Microsoft founder's new book on climate change. Yes, yes, Bill Gates has a new book on climate change for some reason. Uh, But first, uh, Joe Biden on Wednesday sharply criticized, I, I would add deservedly so, the decisions by Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves one day earlier to lift coronavirus restrictions in their states with Biden calling the move a big mistake. Now, you will recall yesterday that just before airtime, Texas GOP Governor Greg Abbott, uh, as his state is still reeling from power and water outages after a winter storm with tens of thousands still without clean water even now. Abbott had tried to distract from his massive failure of deregulation there by declaring that the state was immediately reopening everything to 100 percent capacity and dropping its statewide mask mandate in the bargain. Look at that. Not look at that. Even though thousands are still being sickened from covid every day in Texas, more than 200 dying every day from covid in the Lone Star State, which, by the way, now reportedly has its own very dangerous variant of uh, of the covid, along with uh, all of the other more transmissible and or deadly ones that we are trying to outrace with vaccines. Those have all now shown up in Texas. But we're still months away from outrunning the uh, the virus with our vaccines. Anyway, as of airtime, Greg Abbott uh, yesterday had announced the lifting of those all the restrictions in Texas. He did so, by the way, with a tweet declaring in all caps, Texas is open. One hundred percent. Everything. So that happened right before air. But as we've also been reporting, uh, largely the entire capital city of Jackson, Mississippi, has also been without water now for more than two weeks following that same winter storm. Actually, not the entire city. Largely, it's just the predominantly black parts of the 80 percent African-American city, which for some reason has no water. So what did Mississippi's Republican governor do as well uh, on uh, on Tuesday to help distract from all of that? Yes, he, too, lifted statewide covid restrictions and mask mandates. I'm sure it is just a coincidence that the two states still reeling from that storm. Uh, with Republican governors, decided to lift all the mandates. Anyway, Joe Biden was asked about those decisions at the end of a press avail at the White House this afternoon. Message to Texas and Mississippi. Texas, I think it's a big mistake. Look, I hope everybody's realized by now these masks make a difference. We are on the cusp of being able to fundamentally change the nature of this disease because of the way in which we're able to get vaccines in people's arms. We've been able to move that all the way up to the end of May to have enough for every American to get every adult American to get a shot. And the last thing 
The last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. I carry a card, but I don't have it. I put it on my desk. As of last, as of yesterday, we had lost 511,874 Americans. We're going to lose thousands more. This will not occur. We'll not have everybody vaccinated until sometime in the summer. We have the vaccine to do it. Getting a shot in someone's arm and getting a second shot, you're going to take time. And it's critical, 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 critical that they follow the science. Wash your hands, hot water, do it frequently, wear a mask, and stay socially distanced. And uh, I know you all know that. I wish the heck some of our elected officials knew it. So thank you very much. Follow the science. Now, there's a crazy idea. <laughs> uh, with both Texas and Mississippi still in, still both states in the top 10 deaths per capita list among U.S. states. Health officials have warned that easing restrictions before vaccines have been widely distributed could cause another spike in cases and deaths. An, Ab an Abbott spokesperson uh, in Texas responded by asserting in a statement that the governor was, quote, clear in telling Texans that COVID hasn't ended and that all Texans should follow medical advice and safe practices to continue containing COVID. But the spokesman added that it was also clear that, quote, states mandates, state mandates are no longer needed. Remarkable. Desi, you were raised in Texas. I was. Are state mandates not needed because the folks in Texas are smart enough to take care of themselves without <laughs> any of those pesky government mandates? They are certainly not smart what? enough to take care of themselves without those mandates. See, you can say that. I can't say that. I don't want to insult Texas. <laughs> well, I will. There you go. Ahead of uh, his Biden's remarks to reporters, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki urged Americans to continue wearing masks and practicing social distancing, even as the governors of Texas and Mississippi both lifted restrictions in their states. She said we need to remain vigilant, and President Biden believes that, and he's hopeful that people in these states will continue to follow the guidelines that have been set out and the recommendations made by health and medical experts. Asked whether Biden plans to speak with Abbott and Reeves to ask them to reconsider their moves, Saki said only that the president, quote, speaks with governors of both parties on a regular basis. Of course, now that he's called them Neanderthals, did I hear that right? No, he, see, he, he said that was Neanderthal thinking. I he see. didn't call them uh, Neanderthals. Totally different. Well, right? it's a nuance. But I promise you they will hear it that way. And they will <laughs> yes. begin clutching their pearls and they will be so upset. Maximal outrage. That he's called us Neanderthals. Oh, my God. We are never going to speak to him. We demand an apology or else we will cancel Joe Biden. That's what is coming next. Just Where like is they the did. civility? Yeah, exactly. Just like they did with Neera Tandon. Oh, they're so upset. They're so flushed. Get them on their fainting couch. She said mean things. She compared Ted Cruz to a vampire or something. Oh, my. <laughs> anyway, that's what they're going to do. Uh, so, yeah, that, I don't know if they'll be talking to Joe Biden. Anyway, my God, do we have a nation of idiots. But, hey, at least the voters get it. At least some of them. At least when it comes to climate change, anyway. So we've got some good news on that front, I think. And Michael Mann. That is all ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. 
Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the Bradcast. Did you know that we are completely listener-supported? You can help us stay that way by going to bradblog.com donate to sign up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. skies smiling at me nothing but blue skies do i see oh yeah i hope you're right about that Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our friend and esteemed climate scientist, Dr. Michael E. Mann, seems almost giddy, and not without good cause, I might add, in his new op-ed at Newsweek, which begins this way. We finally seem to have passed the tipping point. Not the climate tipping point we fear. The latest science demonstrates that we can avert the worst impacts of climate change if we act decisively. I'm speaking instead, he writes, of the climate action tipping point so many have long anticipated. He may be right. The climate may finally be right for the long overdue, real, legitimate discussion over the best way forward to battle our climate crisis. There is a lot of evidence to support that theory. Recent news from both private industry and sociopolitical sources suggests that 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 tipping point on climate action may... Emphasis on May, given years of disappointment, having hardened a once optimistic young man such as myself, may finally be here. This week, for example, another hugely encouraging development from the private sector. Following on the huge, literally sea-change news just a few weeks ago that auto giant General Motors would cease producing internal combustion engine cars... By 2035, electrifying their entire line of cars and SUVs by then, the now Chinese-owned Swedish brand Volvo announced this week that they are going even farther, even faster. By the end of this decade, the only Volvo you'll be able to purchase will be electric. The company announced plans on Tuesday to stop selling cars that run on fossil fuels by 2030, five years earlier than GM's announced plan and part of an accelerating trend within the industry to respond to pressure to tackle the climate crisis. CNN notes Volvo wants half of its sales in 2025 to be electric cars and the other half hybrids. That means it will stop selling vehicles powered solely by gasoline or diesel just four years from now. The targets are aggressive for a company that has only brought one fully electric vehicle to market so far, but they reflect a growing consensus that car makers cannot delay the switch to electric vehicles without losing customers and angering government regulators across the globe, and yes, perhaps even here in the U.S. There is no long-term future for cars with an internal combustion engine, Volvo Chief Technology Officer Henrik Green said in a statement. The transition to selling only electric cars will allow Volvo to, quote, meet the expectations of our customers and be part of the solution when it comes to fighting climate change, he said. Time will tell if they are right about their customers or regulators, but recent polling from Pew Trust suggests that uh, it is the customers, not the car companies or the government uh, entities, that are now leading the way. 
As I noted on yesterday's show in my reporting on the confirmation hearings for Congresswoman Deb Holland's nomination to become the first Native American secretary of the U.S. Department of Interior, after she was attacked as a radical for her not radical at all concern about the continuing use of fossil fuels, it was largely white male Republican senators attacking her position as radical. In fact, they were the ones, apparently, who hold the radical position when it comes to energy development. As I detailed, new surveys from Pew find the fossil fuel-supported Republican senators are far out of step with the world and with the U.S. voters and even voters within their own party. In its global survey, Pew found that 86% of respondents across the globe favor renewable energy development over fossil fuel production. That's an astounding 86% to 10% in favor of renewables. Even in the U.S., the numbers are almost as favorable for clean energy over dirty fossil fuels, with 79% of U.S. adults saying the more important priority for addressing the country's energy supply should be to develop alternative energy sources like wind and solar, with only 10% saying the more important priority should be to expand the production of oil, coal, and natural gas. Even among Republican and Republican-leaning independents, uh, a whopping 65% cast their vote for the development of alternative energy sources versus the expansion of fossil fuels. Though whether the millions being paid by fossil fuel companies to those GOP officeholders has prevented them from hearing the interests of their own constituents, well, that's a separate question. Dr. Mann continues the encouraging news in his opinion piece at Newsweek, writing that newly elected President Joe Biden campaigned on climate action. He came in with a mandate to lead on climate, and he is making the most of it. He signed a slew of executive orders several weeks ago that restored our commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. He reversed Trump-era policies aimed at dismantling prior climate efforts, proposed massive jobs programs, including a civilian climate corps, and new hubs of economic opportunity to assist communities transitioning from a dying fossil fuel industry. Biden's aggressive new policies, Mann argues, restore the leadership on climate both at home and abroad, leadership that was lost under the past administration. Taken together, he writes, it's the boldest climate plan in American history. The U.S. is back and ready to not only join, but once again help lead the global effort to avert climate catastrophe. This favorable shift in political winds, he says, coincides with a global youth climate movement and unprecedented extreme weather disasters, which have forced a reckoning. Dangerous climate change is now upon us, and it's simply a matter at this point of how bad we're willing to let it get, he says. A global pandemic has awakened us to the fragility of our existence on this planet while demonstrating that we can change. We're finally seeing the collective will to act, he argues. Polluters haven't given up the fight, of course. As he notes in his new book, The New Climate War, where he details the insidious tactics that fossil fuel interests and those promoting their agenda are still using to slow the inevitable clean energy transition. But they cannot stop it, he says. We are moving on. The real question is precisely where are we going? 
noting that there are two paths now that seemingly diverge on the horizon of potential ways forward. Legendary Nobel Prize-winning climate scientist Dr. Michael E. Mann joins us next to discuss those two potential paths forward on climate, now that we can actually have a debate on such things once again. What a shock. One path that he writes about in his new book, and one that some guy named Bill Gates recently wrote about in his own new book. Man on Gates... <laughs> And much more, perhaps hopeful news on climate action. Straight ahead, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At The Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. With Democrats finally in control of both houses of Congress, sort of, and of the White House, after four hellishly long years of devastation to our climate and our federal efforts to regulate the greenhouse gas pollution that is quickly killing it, Dr. Michael E. Mann, as suggested by his recent op-ed in Newsweek, is feeling optimistic about finally being able to at least try to move forward again on the debate, not about whether global warming exists, but what to actually do about it. He outlines what he describes as two different potential ways forward toward that end, one detailed in a new book by non-climate scientist Bill Gates and another which man details in his own new book. Here to discuss those two potential paths and which, if either, we may now finally be able to take is Dr. Michael E. Mann, distinguished professor and director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, also the author of nearly 200 peer-reviewed and edited publications, as well as a ton of books, including his notorious The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, and with political cartoonist Tom Toll's The Madhouse Effect. And yes, his newest, as mentioned, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Dr. Michael E. Mann, welcome back to the broadcast, Professor. Uh, thank you, Brad. Always great to be with you. It has been a long time since we've spoken, in no small part, uh, because there really wasn't a lot to debate or discuss over the past four years of, you know, that other guy in the office. Yeah. Uh, so much progress against climate change had been stopped or reversed, at least at the federal government level. But you really sound hopeful now, uh, and I hope you're right. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of damage to undo, as you just uh, alluded to, not the least of which is, you know, four years of inaction puts us uh, farther down this path, uh, mm -hmm. way too far down this path. And it means we have to work much harder now to decarbonize our economy even faster because of that lost time, which we will never get back. And, of course, he dismantled policies, environmental policies, not just those that had put, been put in place by the Obama administration, but 
uh, environmental policies that date back to Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how mm. backward um, they were looking and, and moving us. And so, you know, the first uh, sort of the point of business here is for the Biden administration to, to undo that damage, to mm-hmm. make sure that, uh, you know, the, the new appointees to run the various government agencies, um, DOE, EPA, uh, and, and on down the line, that they reverse uh, many of the actions that uh, the, you know, the Trump administration had taken to turn over the reins of our government basically to the polluters, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, put the fox in charge of the hen house. Uh, so there's a lot of cleanup that's going to need to be done. And meanwhile, you know, we can't wait. We've got to move forward at the yeah. same time. But, you know, you read sort of, you know, some, some, some excerpts from that op-ed. Part of why I am optimistic is that more than anything else, it's the leadership that we are now seeing asserted by the Biden administration. And that has an infectious um, impact on other countries. Uh, the fact that the U.S. is willing to take the lead again puts pressure on some other intransigent actors, like Australia, for example. <laughs> yes, and and I do hope you're right about that. And I want to get to uh, sort of the the two paths that you described forward. But y'all, you know, you also cite in your Newsweek piece uh, the unprecedented extreme weather disasters, which of late have forced yeah. a uh, reckoning. I don't disagree, but then I see what you know happened in Texas and elsewhere in the South over the past couple of weeks, and I see the response to you know the outages from antiquated, dirty fossil fuel yeah. grids and and mass water outages in both Texas and now in Mississippi, has been Republican governors lifting their statewide COVID restrictions and reopening for business. Yeah, I know. I mean, so it feels like a distraction to me from their failure to deal with these issues uh, rather than a real response to, you know, what should be the extreme weather reckoning that you are citing, no? Yeah, no, I mean, my my friend uh, Al Franken uh, actually tweeted on this yesterday. It's like, you know, what do you do after you've completely botched, you know, uh, the you know government response to a, a natural disaster? You of course lift the restrictions on COVID nineteen. What what worse actions could right. they be taking? It's almost like there is a malicious intent to do harm to the very people they're yep. supposed to be looking out for. Um, so yeah, you can look at that stuff and and get depressed, or you can you know view that as sort of the you know, really, the the, the last um, embers of a yeah. dying sort of denialist uh, movement um, that is going to the wayside as we move forward, as coal undergoes a death spiral, as, you know, renewables um, increasingly uh, take hold, and, you know, the, uh, the policies of the Obama administration are simply going to speed up that transition that we're already seeing. So we're moving in the right direction. But yeah, there's some bad actors that are still out there. There's some vestiges of denial and delay. And and that's sort of, in a sense, what my book is about. Mm -hmm. It's about the fact that, look, you can't deny it's happening anymore. It's not credible. The forces of inaction, the inactivists, as I call them, fossil fuel interests and politicians, you know, who are doing their bidding, they can't claim that climate change isn't happening because everybody can see it's happening. So they've turned to these other, you know, very insidious tactics to try to slow down this inevitable transition off fossil fuels. Mm. And it, 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 you know, it consists of delay and distraction, deflection, uh, and uh, even in some cases, doom-mongering. If they can convince us it's too late to do anything about the problem, mm. ironically, that can lead us, you know, 
down the path of disengagement, which yeah. is what they want. They don't care how we get there. They want us disengaged, and, and they don't care whether it's because of denial or because of, you know, again, despair. Well, let's not let them uh, bring despair to us here. We do have, it does seem that we have a, 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 you know, finally we can have a legitimate debate again uh, about the direction that we need to go uh, to tackle the climate crisis, Uh, at least sort of. Let's talk about uh, the two different potential paths that you write about at Newsweek, uh, as, as nicely delineated, by the way, by both your new book, The New Climate War, and another new book on climate from some guy named Bill Gates. Who uh, I should note, by the way, Mike, uh, he is not a climate scientist, uh, but he sure has gotten a lot of publicity for his book. Of late. Have you been invited onto all the late night comedy shows to talk about <laughs> your book, Mike? You know, it, it can be a bit frustrating, right? Uh, you know, not because he's getting a lot of attention. I mean, if he if it's good attention, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Gates, um, to the extent that he might use his platform to create more public awareness. Uh, for mm-hmm. you know the climate crisis, that's great. Um, the thing that troubles me, and as I you know, describe in the piece that you refer to, the Newsweek piece, is yep. that you know his prescription is wrongheaded in my view. Um, it's overly technocratic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of like if your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. If you you know got you know built your you know reputation of your role in society has been to promote you know computer technology. Uh, techno- technological or technocratic solutions to problems. Everything looks like a technocratic problem. Mm. And the problem is climate change isn't a technocratic problem. We have the solutions. Wind, solar, geothermal. Um, he downplays those solutions based on what I would say is, uh, is, is an, un, you know, a, 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 an unbalanced uh, sort of assessment of uh, the literature and of what, you know, you know, what, what researchers have found. He sort of downplays the potential for renewable energy to sort of, um, you know, meet our, 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 our needs and, and help us decarbonize our economy. And then by downplaying the obvious solution, um, that forces him to or leads him to propose or promote far riskier strategies like geoengineering, um, massively interfering with the Earth system in some other way to try to offset global warming. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> or, you know, uh, nuclear uh, technology, which is uh, expensive. It's actually not competitive in the free market. It's not competitive with renewable energy. And it comes with other unnecessary risks. And so what troubles me is that he proposes this overly technocratic approach that downplays the existing you know, solution, renewable energy, and downplays the importance of sort of uh, sociopolitics. That this problem at this point is a political problem. It's not a, it, it's not a technological problem. We have the solution. It's, the problem is we don't yet have the representation um, in our government, as you've already alluded to, mm-hmm. places like Texas and Mississippi. We, we, we have opposition, uh, ideologically and politically motivated opposition, to the obvious solutions to this problem. And the only solution there is political, is to get rid of the climate change deniers and delayers and the inactivists and vote in politicians who are willing 
to act. You uh, you note, and, and that's sort of the technocratic view that that he is pushing forward. Uh, you, as you note, are m- uh, moving more of a, a social socio political uh, path forward. Yeah, actually, but, to interrupt for a second, sorry, yeah. I, 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 I had meant to actually quote him on that. He actually said, "Well, I don't know what the solution is to the politics here." Mm-hmm. <laughs> In, in, in a piece that wrote, well, if you don't know the solution to the politics, then you don't know the solution to the problem, because that's what it is at this point. It's a political problem. Well, you say that his, uh, his argument, uh, where he is uh, too pessimistic, that, you know, that, that wind and solar and so forth can't take care of the problems uh, by itself, that we need this technocratic fix. Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of people, uh, and I don't think that uh, Bill Gates here is, um, he, he may be wrong, but I don't think he's uh, necessarily evil or doing no, so. In, insidiously, I think he, he believes this stuff. There yeah. are a lot of people who say that, um, you know, we can't fix these problems uh, with uh, renewable energy alone. So it's not just him. Are, are those folks wrong that, you know, we can't end entirely our reliance on, on fossil fuel? Yeah, well, part of why you do have a lot of folks out there saying that is because you do have thought leaders and opinion leaders who are saying things like that. And, you know, when Bill Gates uses his platform to announce that we need a miracle, and he's literally used those exact words, that, uh, you know, we can't solve this problem with current technology. We need a miracle. Mm. That's frustrating because we don't need a miracle, unless by miracle you mean the political transition that's necessary. <laughs> um, yes. You know, uh, you know d- uh, getting rid of climate change deniers, voting them out of office, um, and overcoming the political obstacles. If that's what he means by a miracle, um, I actually think it can be accomplished. I think it comes down to the will of the people. And so, yeah, I think that part of the problem is that you have had very influential uh, you know, folks like Bill Gates, and he has a huge platform, and, you know, and he is using that platform to, to promote, again, this sort of technocratic uh, view of the problem, and a lot of people are hearing that, and it reinforces those, those, those notions that we somehow, you know, don't have the solution to this problem in our hands, and to the extent that it does that, it gives politicians a pass, right? Because mm-hmm. if you say, you know, it's really difficult, we need a miracle, we don't have the technology yet to solve this problem, it actually provides an excuse to politicians who disingenuously claim that there's nothing we can do. Uh, he also argues in favor of nuclear energy as one of the yeah. uh, solutions here. Uh, you you call his argument unconvincing. I should note, however, that, you know, I believe Gates, uh, well, A, he, I think that he is invested in nuclear energy himself yeah. uh, for yeah. whatever that's worth. Uh, but, you know, esteemed climate scientists like uh, James Hansen, who first informed the world or, or at least Congress about the dangers of greenhouse gas, and climate change back in the uh, 1980s. He also says that nukes will be needed to decarbonize the planet. A lot of uh, uh, a lot of green folks uh, say that nu- nuclear will be necessary. Are they wrong? So, you know, James Hansen, like me, is a climate scientist. Mm-hmm. He's not an energy systems expert. Um, and, you know, I'm not an energy systems expert, but I do try to listen to what those experts uh, say. I do follow, you know, the work of folks like uh, Mark Jacobson of Stanford, who's published, you know, um, uh, in, in this area for a number of years. People like John Cumey uh, 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 of Stanford and, and others who have done the hard research to actually look at, you know, renewable energy technology and estimate what can be accomplished on the time frame of the next 10, 15, 20 years. And there are now multiple peer-reviewed studies. And so, again, I'm not saying, hey, this is Mike Mann, the climate scientist's 
views mm-hmm. on you know energy systems uh, transitions and renewable energy and what i'm saying is i'm going to tell you what the peer reviewed literature you know mm-hmm. uh, says uh, based on you know the experts who research this and publish this in in the peer reviewed literature like Mark Jacobson and others, and there was, this, uh, there was a study, uh, an independent study from uh, the University of California, Berkeley, uh, another uh, sort of group of energy experts, um, and they've all come to the conclusion that we can meet 80% of projected um, uh, energy demand by 2030 mm. from uh, renewables, Wow! and 100% by 2050. Actually, wow. I think it's 80% by 2035 mm-hmm. and, and 100% by 2050. And so, and it, you know, that isn't just them speaking off the cuff, uh, m- making numbers out of, out of thin air. Mm-hmm. That's based on really detailed, you know, uh, 40, 50-page long reports that really look at the nitty-gritty of each of the available energy systems and what the current technology is and what's projected in the future. And they're just going based on existing technology. And that, that would be without uh, needing to use nuclear to get us there? That's without, without nuclear, exactly. Right. And, and they're not even making assumptions because uh-huh. it's reasonable to say you know, all this stuff is going to get more efficient. I mean, we're going to have continued research and development. Um, they're saying existing technology. Yeah. We're not even relying on the assumption that we will see greater efficiency in wind and solar, just given the technology we have now and scaling it up. Yeah. And, 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 and so... That's without nuclear, and so if you can get there without nuclear, then the point is why you know take the additional risks that come with nuclear pro- proliferation, obviously uh, radiation, and the ultimate sort of what's ultimately I don't know um, ironic. I-, I guess I would have to say and I talk about this in the book in the New Climate War. You know, the fact that conservatives, you often have political conservatives, and James Hansen has said he's a Republican, you know, he believes in, you know, conservative uh, approaches. Um, and, you know, there were a, a number of Republican climate scientists who got together and, and wrote an op-ed in the New York Times some years ago about mm-hmm. how, you know, we need nuclear. to, And, and so it's sort of coming from their ideological mm. standpoint. Um, I think it has to do just with the history of nuclear in this country and, you know, the fact that it was... Uh, you know, uh, tree-hugging, you know, hippies that mm-hmm. were protesting nuclear in the 1970s. And so, you know, uh, that it's that sort of hippie bashing, like, now we can't, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've got to push back against uh, that sort of, you know, thinking. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess to wrap up that thought, um, it's just, it, it comes with these extra risks, and it's not competitive in the free market. If these folks are conservatives and they believe in free market economics, the irony is that nuclear power isn't competitive <laughs> against renewable mm. energy in the free market. It's only possible with huge government subsidies. You also made uh, a one really important point that actually you sort of made it parenthetically in your piece at Newsweek, but I want to I, I, I pull it out here because uh, yeah. I concur with it. You say that the presumption that a simple techno fix it will be somehow available down the road uh, that that could easily take the pressure off of polluters to reduce carbon emissions now yeah. that does seem to be a focus for uh, you know what I will describe as uh, as those who claim to be concerned about yeah. the climate um, but you know oh we can't do it maybe it's uh, it's it's too hard it's too expensive we'll figure out something down the road <clears throat> but that is really another way of saying let's take no action now isn't it 
that's right. It's a way of kicking the can down the road. It's what we sometimes call a moral hazard, right? The idea that you can hold this out there and say, oh, look, if we need it, we've got this uh, solution. We, c- we can deploy that. Um, it's a way of taking the pressure off or making the changes that we need to make now. Mm. And so I do think it, it's dangerous uh, for that reason. Um, and that's true, uh, you know, in particular with these so-called geoengineering schemes that are already potentially dangerous just because of the way that we're interfering at a global scale with a system that we don't understand perfectly. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> you mean you mean shooting a, a bunch of stuff up in the sky all around the planet into the atmosphere to try to shade the Earth from the sun is not a, is not a brilliant scheme? Well, it's about I, as brilliant as, as dumping huge amounts of um, iron into the ocean in the hope that that'll fertilize the algae to take all that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. You know, what could possibly go wrong? I see no downside. Uh, by the way, has uh, have, have you talked to Bill Gates uh, about his book or about your position on all of these things? Have you guys ever had a conversation about this? Uh, I haven't. I'd be happy to, to do so. But, um, uh, you know, it's uh, more... Uh, it's easier for him to reach me than for me to reach him. <laughs> so I'm still waiting for that phone call. Why? Are you trying to reach him with Microsoft Windows? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, it crashed on me. I mean, that's, you know. Well, you no. know, here's the problem. Here's <laughs> yes. the problem. If the, if the global climate system crashes, you can't reboot it. Oh, yeah, there's that. Uh, now, as far as your solution, uh, Dr. Michael Mann, and the sociopolitical way forward, it seems to me that Republicans are going to continue to block everything. Uh, that is good for climate. I hope I'm wrong about that. I don't see a lot of interest, however, in in them working with Democrats yeah. on any of this. Yeah. That leaves executive actions by President Biden, which by definition are somewhat limited in scope, yeah. Uh, yeah. regulatory devices implemented by federal agencies, and the Democrats' planned second bill that they uh, will be able to pass under uh, budget reconciliation rules right. in the Senate so they can right. do it with a simple majority, um, which would be a massive infrastructure bill. Can what needs to be done now actually be done with executive actions and federal regulations and an infrastructure bill, even if it's a massive one? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Brad. And I wish I knew the answer, right? Because it's, 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 it's very difficult to see precisely how this is going to play out. I mean, when, when you've got as thin a margin as you have right now, 50 Democrats who need the tie-breaking vote of a Democratic vice president to pass something through reconciliation, all you need is one defection. And you do have some coal state senators like uh, Joe Manchin, mm-hmm. who it's not clear where they'll come down. In fact, there are a handful of Democrats uh, from conservative states uh, and uh, you know fossil fuel uh, states that you know may may not vote um, you know to pass uh, a reconciliation bill with uh, substantial climate action. So mm-hmm. the safest route would be to not rely on that to see if you can win over a handful of moderate Republicans, and that does seem to be a, an uphill challenge right mm-hmm. now based on the way uh, this current vote uh, is, has gone. Uh, that having been said. You know, if you look at the stimulus package that was passed, you know, more than a month ago, uh, that contained $35 billion for green energy. And it was, it was actually um, passed overwhelmingly. Uh, it was supported overwhelmingly by Republicans as well as Democrats. So you could look to that as uh, an example uh, that it is possible. Mm. And I think it's going to depend a lot on public sentiment. If there's enough public pressure, enough pressure that some of these senators in vulnerable 
states and some of these, uh, you know, uh, Republican Congress people in, mm-hmm. in, in vulnerable um, uh, districts, if they feel the weight of public opinion on them, um, then, I, you know, I do think it's possible to, to pressure them into supporting this stuff. I mean, you know, that having been said, this current, uh, you know, a stimulus package has something like 70 or more percent, and yet we, we don't see a single Republican yeah. uh, willing to vote for it. So who knows? You know, yeah. if I... I'm not going to tell you I can predict how the politics will play out, but we've got to try. We do indeed. And, uh, you know, I'm I I hope I hope you're right. At least we have uh, at least we can have a conversation now about various ways to move forward. That alone is uh, refreshing from what we've been dealing with over the past four years. And I should note uh, that you end on sort of an optimistic note uh, with with in your Newsweek piece uh, with Bill Gates saying that uh, you that these two paths may be able to converge. There's a lot of daylight now. But you note that uh, both he and and you are both optimistic. So maybe, ultimately, you can find a path forward together, uh, and that would be nice. I, I think so. Look, you know, Bill, Bill Gates has a different uh, vision of the path forward, but, you know, as we've said, it, 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 it comes from a place of good faith, in my view. I don't think he's a bad person. I think he, you know, he, he has a different perspective. I, I think his prescription isn't the right prescription. But wouldn't it be great if, that, you know, that's what we were dealing with. We yep. had different prescriptions on the table, and we had Democrats and Republicans sitting together, not debating whether we have a problem, whether we have to do something about the climate crisis, but precisely what we're going to do about it. That would be refreshing. Imagine that. Well, I hope that does come about. We'll edit out that part where you uh, took a shot at his Microsoft Windows crashing all the no, time. No, please <laughs> don't. <laughs> Dr. Michael E. Mann is the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. His latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. His uh, piece at Newsweek is called The Right Path Forward on Climate Change. You can, of course, find him at michaelmann.net and on the Twitters at Michael E. Mann. Also, I think, at Facebook, Michael Mann Scientist. So you have no excuse for not uh, harassing him. Uh, Michael, great speaking with you, my friend, and I will look forward to doing it again uh, more soon this time in the future, now that we have something to uh, talk about. Thank you, Brad. It was my pleasure. All right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, always great to talk to Dr. Mann. Yes. It's it's really awesome. Yes. But I do want to point out one nuance regarding the debate over... Do you want me to new- get him back on and so you can tell him he was wrong about <laughs> no, something? No, I'm not going to tell oh, you okay. he's wrong because right. he's not. He's right. absolutely correct that we have all the tools that we already need to make this happen. And one of the things is a nuance in the debate over nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. What a lot of the climate campaigners are talking about is how we prioritize phasing out certain sources of energy. So they're saying existing nuclear plants are already delivering zero emissions energy. So if we phase out fossil fuel sources first and then look at phasing out existing nuclear plants, that will help us prevent nuclear plants from being replaced with natural gas generation, Mm -hmm. which is what is happening right now, and that is the opposite of decarbonization. So in other words, as you say, prioritize, get rid of the nukes last. Right. uh, After the fossil fuels. That said, aren't there a bunch of environmental 
environmental folks? Isn't James Hansen stuff calling for these like these smaller nuclear yes, plants? Yes, they are. The- and the Biden administration is also investing in advanced nuclear reactors. And the thing is, they're going to probably need that in order to get Republicans to buy into any kind of meaningful mm. climate action. But the worst part of it is, and this is what Dr. Hansen is afraid of, we may need it. We may not be able to get out of this without advanced new nuclear, but we won't have that unless we do the research now. That's not what my friend Mike Mann says. (laughs) Well, he says we might be able to make it, but that's the idea, is that you get Republican buy-in by going ahead and investing in advanced nuclear. Maybe we won't need it. Let's hope we don't. Uh, I am hoping we don't. (laughs) I am indeed. But you're saying... We actually have to offer them. We actually have to put out money. We have to put in billions of dollars into advanced nuclear in order to get them to go along with anything. Well, the idea for Republicans, yeah, I believe that that would They're probably not gonna be go necessary. They're not going to go along with it anyway. It's going to be necessary to get moderate Democrats. Well, the oh. so-called moderate, the more conservative oh. Republican light. But yeah, they, they sort of have this, this hang-up on nuclear that they're going to need to see some money for that. So oh, I think that brother. that's where that is. Brother. I know. Uh, well, I guess we just need to get uh, Bill Gates and Michael Mann on this show to to slug it out. <laughs> Do you think can you can you get in touch with the Mud Gates' wrestling. people? Yeah, I'm sure he'll be can real quick him? to join us on that one. Well, Michael Mann came. Why wouldn't Bill Gates? <laughs> well, help him sell his book, which he really needs because he's only the I don't know tenth richest man in the world at this point. Ah, oh, brother. Okay, anything else on that? Because i got to get out. Yeah, actually, one more thing. There was something that Dr. Mann mentioned about how Bill Gates is advocating some dangerous experimental ideas like geoengineering, yeah. where you spew up stuff into the atmosphere to shield the planet from the sun and the sun's heat, and that has a lot of questionable, unintended uh, side effects that it could have on the planet. And One thing I would like to mention is that we are already geoengineering when we are digging up CO2 that has been sequestered for millions of years and we're releasing that into the atmosphere. That has been humanity geoengineering for the last 200 years. And how's it worked out? Not great. Not so well. All right. Anyway, we got to go. But don't worry, we will be spewing up more stuff into (laughs) the atmosphere on tomorrow's thrilling broadcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest, Mike Mann of Penn State University, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. All of this is made possible only by listeners who stop by bradblog.com donate to help us keep up this good fight as well as we can every day. That's bradblog.com donate. You can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>